there's something interesting about that when it comes to saying something really well in a short amount of time, uh, it's actually more difficult. You have to be more concise. You have to be more on point with your words. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, movie directors and, 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 and uh, film writers will talk about this idea of the art of elimination. When they're trying to tell this story and they're trying to convey this message, they have to eliminate uh, all, all of the words that might be good words or good parts of the story that, that uh, you could actually like lose the essence of what they're trying to tell in the story. It was true for me, I remember in college writing papers. Um, I got to a point, and I like to write, and, and uh, I, I don't know why I like writing papers. Um, that's probably why I give sermons each week. But uh, if I had to write like a three-page paper and make a point, for me it was a lot more difficult than writing like a seven to ten-page paper because you have to be more concise and on point with your words. And when we approach the book of Romans, I want you to think about that. Because this book is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And what we know is the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, um, or a big portion of the New Testament, and everything that he wrote, he was writing letters to churches. And in all these different letters that Paul writes, he's writing to churches um, that he's been to before. He's writing to churches that he either helped start or he has some sort of relationship with them. So there's this personal connection as he writes. But in this letter to the church in Rome, he hasn't been to Rome yet. And he really wants to go there. We know that he desperately wants to get to Rome. But he's not sure if he's going to make it. Because, you know, travel at this point in history is extremely dangerous. And with the danger, he knows, I want to get there, but I don't know if it's going to happen. But... I'm writing them a letter. And since I don't know if I'm actually going to get there to follow up with the letter, what I put in this letter has to be on point. I can't waste any words. I have to be concise. I have to let them know this is what is important uh, when it comes to who God is, what God's doing in this world, and then what it means to be in right relationship with him. And what we get in the book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus. It's his masterpiece. This is Paul's best work. The reformer Martin Luther talked about how this is the richest part of the New Testament, this book of Romans, because it's the purest form of the gospel that we have, this presentation of what God does in the world, what it means for us, and then how do we respond to it. So as we approach this book Romans, what we know is that this is something that's extremely significant. Paul is writing to a place that he hasn't been yet, and he's saying, you need to know this about Jesus. It's full of his Christology. It's rich with theology. It's a very important book. And we're going to take the next eight weeks and look at it. In Romans 1, he has this introduction and we know that uh, uh, kind of tradition tells us that he writes sometime around 58 AD. Um, and it's probably writing from uh, the city of Corinth. And as he's anticipating going to Rome someday, uh, he writes these words and he starts out with this introduction. And I want to just look at in this introduction, this verse today, where I think there's this key phrase. And it's in Romans 1.7. It says, to all in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. So he's writing to this group of people who have formed this church in Rome, and he's saying, this letter is to you who are in Rome, who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Loved by God, 
and called to be saints. In this verse, what Paul is doing is he establishes two things, identity and calling. For those who are part of the church in Rome, identity and calling. The identity piece is simply this, loved by God. You're a part of this church community, I'm writing to you, you're loved by God. There's an identity here. God loves you. And we know as we read scripture, this is true for that church, but it's also true for us. Our identity is found in the fact that God loves us. Scripture has a lot to say about God's love. Has a lot to say. First uh, John uh, 4.8 talks about how God is love. This character of God, that God is love. John 3.16, probably the most famous Bible verse uh, there is that we always see like at football games with a sign. We, we, know, we know this scripture. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. God loved the world. First John uh, 3.16 says this is how we know what love is. And it talks about what God did for us by sending Jesus into the world to die for us. Scripture has a lot to say about this idea of love. The very character, the very nature of God is love. And Paul wants these people who are reading this letter to know that you are loved by God. I feel like it's one of those ideas uh, that we hear so often that sometimes it gets watered down, the fact that we're actually loved. But when you think about uh, really the the depth of this, the creator of the universe, uh, the infinite God, in all of his might and all of his majesty and all of his glory, uh, loves us, humans. And we have a hard enough time loving each other. And here's this God who knows everything about us, who loves us. And identity is found in this idea of love. Love's a a word um, that sometimes maybe we don't necessarily grasp the weight of it. Because in our culture, we say things like, I love my wife, and I love my children, and I love tacos. But the love, the depth of love that Paul is talking about here is significant. One of my favorite authors is this man named C.S. Lewis. wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, a bunch of other books. Um, He wrote this book called The Four Loves, and he talks about this idea of the word love. And in the Greek language, which scripture's written in, he says they actually have four different words for love. Because they don't want to have that problem of, you know, I love this, but I also love, you know, my family and also love food. And their their words are a little bit more specific. And what C.S. Lewis uh, draws out in this book, The Four Loves, is he talks about these different kinds of love that are found in the Greek world. The first word uh, for love is this idea, storgi, or this word storgi. Um, Storgi is like this empathy bond. Storgi is kind of like the love that just a community has it's kind of more, I don't know if the word is generic love, but it's like we love each other, right? We all love each other. We're in community together. And there's this kind of uh, feeling of, of uh, mutual love for each other. We're, 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 uh, we're kind of you know, friends. We're, we're like-minded people. And love is kind of the, this is kind of the word that, that connects us, but it's not a super deep love, um, but it's kind of this empathy for each other. Uh, the second form of, of love that's found in the Greek world is this word 
philia. Philia is kind of this friendship or this bond. This might be between two good buds. Um, this might be between um, more of like a family tie. There's more of a connection here with this word. Um, you know, I, I'm sure some of you have, you know, like a, a group of friends, but then you've got a couple of friends who are, have just always been there. They're kind of like your inner circle that you have more trust built up. This is the kind of love that would explain that. Maybe it's the kind of love that families have for each other. The third kind of love that's talked about is this word eros, uh, where we get the word erotic. It's this kind of more physical love. It'd be more of like, uh, uh, um, like a husband and wife kind of thing. It's a, it's, there's this physical aspect to the love, and it has a little bit less to do possibly with like the emotions of it as much as the physical side of it. And then there's this fourth kind of love, which is agape. And agape is unconditional love. Unconditional love. This is the kind of love that, uh, that only a God could give. This kind of love that it's not based on circumstances or performance or what you do. It's based on the giver. Agape love, this unconditional idea of love that I catch glimpses of with my own family and with my children of, of yeah, I love them no matter what, is the kind of love that God has for us. And when Paul talks about this idea that you're loved by God, of all the Greek words he uses, he uses agape. You are loved unconditionally by God. So there's this identity piece of uh, we're valued that much as an individual, that the God of the universe loves us, loves us. And that's important because in our world, we find our, we, we wrap up our identity in all sorts of different things. We have all sorts of these false identities. And I know in my life, when I don't find my identity in the fact that God loves me, is when I get in trouble. For me, the false identity comes, um, you know, one of the things uh, I think I, I struggle with is, is people-pleasing. I find my identity in what people think about me. Um, and, and it's, it's a, a terrible thing for a pastor uh, to, to deal with, is people-pleasing. And so I, I, I really care about people's opinions, and I carry that. And when I start to put my identity in, not in the fact that God loves me for who I am and who he created me to be, but I put my identity in, the fa- in what other people think about me, my approval rating, was it, what it causes is insecurity. Uh, what it causes is anxiety, um, low self-esteem. The other thing I put my identity is, in is, is my image, the way that I'm portrayed, what I produce, how successful I am. I wrap my identity up in that. And so I value, you know, how good I am as a husband, how good I am as a, a leader. Um, and if I'm not producing, um, what happens is that it's that same thing. All of a sudden I have this low self-esteem, this low image, because I'm wrapped up in what I produce, not in what God has done for me. I put my identity in security, having a home, having food on the table, you know, having the basic elements, which is great. We need that, but we don't need to put our identity in that, how much money I make. And what happens is when I start to wrap my identity up in these different things about my image, how I'm portrayed, what people think about me, security, um, there's these unintended consequences 
that caused me to just live this life of worry and anxiety and uh, self-doubt. And all sorts of these things stem from this fact when I don't find my identity in God, the God who loves me. And Paul wants these people to know that you are loved by God. And for us as a church, having this peace and understanding that we are valuable because God loves us. And I, I, I love this quote by this uh, pastor named Matt Chandler. He says, God isn't in love with some future form of you. He loves you here and now as you are. God loves you as you are. And as we kind of just turn that word and wrestle with it, what we find is there's this unbelievable depth to the love of God. He loves us so much that he would die for us. Our identity is found in that love. Romans 8, 37, 39, through 39, in this book of Romans, talks about this love. And there's this verse that um, I find a lot of strength and peace in. It says, Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ, nothing separates us from that love. The identity piece when we can rest in that, is extremely important. So there's this identity that Paul deals with as he writes, but then there's also this calling. And this is what I've come to understand, not only what God has done for me and what God uh, has done in me, but what God is now doing through me. And I would say that God loves us exactly as we are. He meets us here. Our identity is found in that. But God loves us way too much to just leave us as we are. So he's pushing us and transforming us to be uh, what he originally created us to be as humans. And what we have here is this calling where Paul says, those who are loved by God and called to be saints. And he uses this word, saints. You're called to be saints. We think about what a saint is in our mind. um, You know, our our pictures of saints um, come from probably the Catholic tradition where it talks about these these people who've kind of lived this life that has become above reproach. They've worked miracles and they've been given this kind of title as a saint. And those are great pillars of the Christian faith. But when Paul's writing this calling to be saint, what he's talking about is something different. And I kind of came to understand the idea of this saint that he's talking about through, uh, through a Greek class in college Um, And we learned that the word saint was this word, hagios. And the reason I remember hagios, which means set apart, or holy, or different, or sacred. That's literally what this word hagios means for saint. I remembered it because in this class uh, that I had where I was taking Greek, we had to sing this song every morning to start class. And it was, uh, I don't want to sing it for you because that would be like, anything but sacred, but it went, it went hagios, 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 and then it broke off into this whole, you know, it, was, it actually was a Christmas carol that we started singing in September. 
And I remember, I remember this word hagios because the song we had to sing it every single morning in college. And then at the end of the semester, uh, there was extra credit. And, you know, I w- you know, C's get degrees, so I was kind of right in that range um, for Greek. And, uh, and I needed extra credit. And so I was like, well, what's the extra credit? And our professor said, you'll get extra credit in this course if you will come with me to the Circle Center Mall in downtown Indy and sing this Christmas carol in public in the middle of the mall. And I was thinking... I really need extra credit. That's probably about the worst thing. Like, can I write a paper? Like, can I do anything else? And he said, no, you've got to come with me. Group, this group of students, we're going to go down to the Circle Center Mall, and we're going to sing Hagios, 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 because it's Christmas, and people will love it. And I thought, people are not going to love it. So I ended up going down with one of my buddies. We get to Circle Center Mall, and it's Christmas, and this, the mall's decked out. And we get to the, kind of the middle of the mall in the food court, and we line up like a choir, and we sing Hagios, Hagios, Hagios. And people are staring at us, and we look just ridiculous. And it's, you know, most of the people that needed extra credit, um, you know, are like football players and baseball players, so we don't really sing well. And, uh, and we do it, and we sing it. And I remember after that, just this bizarre moment where we sing it, and he has us go and do it again and again. All these people are staring at us. And he says, you all get extra credit, but there's also something here I want you to know. As you're singing here, you look weird. You look different. You look set apart. And this idea of hagios, being saints, is that you're different than what the culture is. You're different than you're set apart from what everyone else is. And this is probably, you know, for you, kind of feels like a negative connotation. And, and, uh, and that sometimes is what happens when you follow Jesus. You're this group of people who are set apart from the culture, but not just set apart from the culture uh, for the sake of being um, unapproachable. When Paul talks about this idea of being set apart for the culture, it's for the, the, the common good of the culture. As we're set apart, it's not to be kind of isolationist or this exclusive club uh, that is above reproach, judging the rest of the world. When he talks about this, this group of people who are going to be set apart, this hagios, it's for the common good of the city that they're in. So there's this calling to be holy so that God can work through us, that God can work through us. So Hagia, set apart, holy, sacred. When it comes to this idea, um, I, I love this quote. Um, one of the best books I read over this last year was a biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer written by Eric Metaxas. And if you don't know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was this Lutheran pastor uh, who grew up in Germany, right between uh, the outbreak of, of really World War II, but he kind of grew up between World War I and World War II. And as Nazi Germany was kind of uh, destroying the world around him, there was this, this pastor that was called to be set apart. And so he has this inter- interesting kind of life that he lives in Nazi Germany, trying to be this person who's holy for the common good of his city. And McTaxis summarizes kind of his theology, and he says this, that being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. I love that thought. So when we think about this idea of holy, set apart, sacred, there is this aspect of, yeah, we want to live this holy life where we do try to avoid the things that cause destruction in us, which we say would, you know, that's what sin does is it causes death, it causes destruction. It's a huge part of being a Christian. But being a Christian isn't just about 
abstaining from things. It's about actively pursuing the will of God. And this group of people who were called to be saints are actively on mission for God. What we find in like Romans 1, 8 and 9, he's saying, uh, Paul is saying, I'm hearing all these reports about this activity that you are doing as the body of Christ. And it's, I'm hearing reports all around the world about what you're doing as you work towards the redemption and restoration of this broken world. So to be hagios, to be set apart, is to be set apart in such a way that we're actively available in the yes position to the mission of God in this world. And what's interesting is this hagios, the saints idea, it's not just for those who work in a church, it's not just those who are priests, it's not just those who are missionaries, but it's for all of us. We follow Jesus. We're called to be saints, set apart, holy. We look different. There's an approachability, approachability, is that a word? We're approachable to the community. They know they can come and experience and encounter Jesus through us. Called to be saints. The other aspect I think of this idea of of being a saint, of being hagias, of being set apart, is that we're constantly open to transformation and change. So we're, uh, we're actively working for God's mission in the world, but then we're also open to transformation and change in our own life. So to be set apart, to be uh, countercultural for the common good is this idea uh, that we're willing to say, I want to become more like Jesus in everything that I do. And I'm not there yet, but God is drawing me and pulling me into this life where I look more like him. And there's certain things in my life um, that I'm willing to say, I want to change to become more like him. So we're loved by God, identity peace, called to be saints, the calling peace. So I wonder today, uh, as a new church, um, what that looks like for you. I don't know where you're at in your journey with God, your relationship with Christ. Maybe you've never experienced God's love in a way that is uh, powerful and real and tangible. Today, uh, I would love for you to experience God's love in that way. Maybe uh, you haven't experienced God's love in a, in a way that's kind of fresh and new and you just feel completely stale uh, spiritually. And I want to invite you today to have uh, the freshness of God's love come into your life. Maybe uh, you, you have this relationship with God, you, you, you know that you're in right relationship with him, but you've never really kind of responded to this calling uh, to be saints, to be hagios. And today I want to invite you into that calling. Um, and so what, one of the things I wanted to do is, uh, it might feel a little bit old-fashioned or really churchy, but I'd like to take a moment and just pray. And I'd love for you to close your eyes, and, um, and I'd love to pray for you silently. And uh, if you would like to experience God's love in a new way today. Um, What I'd love for you to do um, is just look up and make eye contact with me, and I'll pray for you silently. Um, So let's take a moment and just be silent, and then I'll ask this question.
God, we thank you for your love for us, that we're loved by you, and our identity is wrapped up in that. And if you'd like to just experience God's love in a way that you haven't before, if you'd like to look up, I'd love to pray for you silently. Um, and now if you uh, want to respond to this calling to be hagios in this world, to be saints, um, we're actively pursuing God's mission. We're constantly open for transformation. If you look up, make eye contact, I'd love to pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for inviting us into this plan of redeeming and restoring the world, for loving us in our brokenness and still desiring to use us. We know that you use broken vessels, Lord. Lord, as we set out on this journey where we're just diving into this book of Romans, Lord, we just pray that you would transform us, that we would be open to transformation, and that we'd be available for the mission that you've given us. Matt's going to come up and close us in a song. We close each service with, uh, with communion. And uh, for us, this is something that's not just a routine that we do, um, but it's a, an action that is symbolic of what God has done in this world for us. And so as we, we head towards communion, um, you think about just kind of what God's stirring in your heart today. And when you go to the bread, uh, the bread represents God's body that was broken open uh, for us. The juice represents God's blood that was poured out for us. And we believe that um, through God's brokenness, he brings healing. Through his death, he brings life. And so whatever you come in here today with that is broken or dying or dead. Um, we believe that in this moment when you have this uh, symbolic experience that God uh, transforms us. And we remember what God did for us, but then we also remember what God is doing through us as a church. And so as we take communion today, let's have that in mind that we are people of the resurrection. And Matt's going to play a song, and um, feel free to grab communion over here. It's off to the side. And just take it, uh, it's open to, uh, to anyone who's in relationship with God. And just t- take it on your own. Um, I'll be standing in the back with a few people. If you'd like to just kind of pray about um, and, and, and know more about what it's like to be in right relationship with God, to experience in his love in a new way, come talk to me, come talk to David. He'll be back there. And we'd love to pray with you. Um, But let's just take some time worshiping and then we'll close and Matt will dismiss us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for your love.
for your calling. Lord, we take communion, we remember what you've done. Lord, we remember what you've called us to do, what you've called us to be. We thank you for your word that we get to look at these letters that were written 2,000 years ago. And we know that uh, you're speaking to us now through them. We thank you for your love. We thank you for calling us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.